I forgot to mention that since we are talking about and celebrating communion today, you need the elements of communion, which if you're here, you can find in those buckets over there on the side. If you're watching online, see if you can find some juice, some bread so that you can celebrate with us. Thank you. All right, again, welcome Pastor Brian Foreman and welcome to Cornerstone. We are starting a new series called Praxis. Now, I already mentioned that praxis is a Greek word. Uh, some of you will know that uh, when I was in school, I minored in biblical languages, so I studied Greek and I studied Hebrew. And, um, and it's very common if you tell somebody that you studied Greek, what will they say? Anybody? It's all Greek to me, yes. And the funny thing about it is it's what everybody says and everybody thinks they are so incredibly original and funny when they say it. And everybody who has studied Greek and mentions it has heard it only about a thousand times. So feel free to say that to me if I, I bring up Greek. But I don't really talk about it a lot because it's not necessarily important for you to know the word. It's more important for you to understand the concept. So let's talk about what the concept behind praxis is. This is uh, a shot from my um, uh, Greek lexicon. And it says praxis uh, has four different versions, acting, activity, function, way of acting, course of action, plan of action, undertaking, act, action, or deed. Uh, in the New Testament, you got the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then you have the Acts of the Apostles. Acts is this word, praxis. It's what they did. Now, we've talked before about how, the, uh, uh, how I love The Mandalorian and how I think it's one of the most Christian uh, TV shows on uh, television today because it talks about the way, and that's what the original name of the, of the faith was, was the way. Now, that is a different word, tadas, way, path. That is more like the culture. It's the things we always do and the things that we never do. These are more like practices. These are a way, our way of acting, but these are the practices. These are the things that we do as followers of Jesus. And because we're a biblically based church, we want to root what we do in the scriptures. So we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about what are the things that we do as a church, as followers of Jesus. And they fit into this idea that when, when uh, one of the most um, intense growth periods that I had as a, in my faith as a follower of Jesus was when I went off to school because it was the first time that I was surrounded by people who were my own age, who were serious about following Jesus. We uh, you know, I was in the dorms, so we lived together, we played together, we prayed together, we ate together, we went to church together. We it was just a, I was majoring in biblical studies, so I was studying the Bible. We were meeting for devotions. We were doing all this kind of stuff, and it acted like a greenhouse. So when Cornerstone started, and it was kind of funny because we all had such a good experience that even after we graduated, started getting jobs, started marrying, we were, we were trying to recreate that atmosphere. 
atmosphere. There were a couple of my friends that we got married and we started our families, but we all got apartments in this little uh, set of apartments so that we could still be kind of close together because we enjoyed that community and experienced it so much. So when we started Cornerstone, I was like, that's what I want. I want I want, that's what church should be like, right? It should be like the spiritual greenhouse that you just come into this atmosphere and like a greenhouse that has just the right sun and the right temperature and, and uh, right um, fertilizer and all this kind of stuff that it's just designed to make you grow and flourish. That that's what I want a church to be like. That That's what a church should be like. So when we talk about these practices, these acts, we are talking about those things that make for growth. Uh, like in a greenhouse, you have all of those different environmental factors to make things grow and flourish. So we want a person who comes into church to feel like everything is just set there for them to grow and to flourish. So that's what we're going to be talking about. And we're going to be starting with celebrating communion. And the reason that I wanted to do that is that we, uh, we celebrate communion on a regular basis, usually around once a month or so. I grew up in a tradition where we did it only like once every three months. Some of you will have been a part of a tradition where you just did it every week. Some of you grew up in a tradition where it was the focus and highlight of every week's service. So different churches do it differently that I want, uh, that, that I don't do it every week is that I want people to be able to celebrate communion with understanding, to really know what they are doing. So we haven't really talked about this in detail in a long time, but we are going to answer this question. What is the Lord's Supper? Now, Again, because it's something that's so ubiquitous, so common among uh, the churches that you might think, well, I already know the answer to that. But that's probably informed by the tradition that you grew up in or if you don't have any tradition and you know, just what you have seen and observed. But um, this is something that is universal it, it, you know, if you watched any part of the coronation yesterday, you saw that they celebrated communion. They did the Eucharist as a part of that service. Every week in churches around the world for the last 2,000 years, people have been celebrating communion. And the roots of it go back even further to that, another almost 1,000 years to the deliverance of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and the establishment of the Passover celebration, which is what communion is rooted in. This is an ancient and universal practice or praxis of the church. So for me, the tradition that I grew up in, we celebrated, like I said, about once every three months. So it was kind of a big deal. It didn't happen that often. And the emphasis, which comes from the scripture that we'll look at today, was on not taking communion in an unworthy manner. So it was always presented as a time for you to examine yourself, to see where you have been falling short, to see where you have been sinning, to see where you needed to adjust yourself, where you needed to 
ask for forgiveness. And so it was very solemn. It was almost sorrowful. And we would say that we celebrated communion, but I'm not sure that that was the exact word. We have definitely observed communion, but I'm not sure that we celebrated it. And then when I was a part of the church plant in South Florida that Sue Ellen and I were a part of, and I eventually came on staff, uh, that's where I was ordained. That was my first ministry paid position. The first time that we did communion, I was completely thrown off kilter because we played celebratory kind of upbeat music and it had more of a, we really did celebrate communion and the emphasis was on the gospel and the meaning behind it. And can be honest, can I be honest with you? I, it felt not only weird, it felt wrong. It's like, no, we should not be, we should not be so happy when we're celebrating communion. We are supposed to be focusing on our sins and making sure that we examine ourselves and make sure that we have confessed all of our sins so that we don't get sick and die if we take communion, which is also in this passage that we'll look at today. So it felt weird. But you know what? As I examined it, I kind of came around. And we'll talk about that today. For others of you, you've been in a tradition where you just kind of did it almost thoughtlessly. You didn't think about your sin. You didn't think about Jesus. You just said, okay, this is what we do. When we show up for church, we do this. And, and you just went through the motions, but maybe the meaning wasn't there. So that's why we're going to spend a whole message talking about communion today. And what I want, the, the, the reason that this is so important is that if you, if you do it thoughtlessly, you'll miss the point and you'll miss the, the, the richness and the value of communion. Or if the focus is wrong, then not, not only will you miss the, the, the value and the, and the true meaning of it, you can be kind of thrown off course and just kind of miss the point entirely. So I don't want that to happen for anyone. Here's the bottom line for today if you're taking notes, and that is that celebrating communion celebrates Jesus. The focus is on Jesus, who he is, what he did, and what it means for us. So overview of the whole message. We'll come back to all of these, so don't worry about rushing to write them down. Communion is an expression of faith in Jesus who celebrates it by believers in Jesus and in a way that honors Jesus. So celebrating communion is celebrating Jesus. Do you get the idea that it's all kind of about Jesus? You got it. So next step challenge that I will give you is this, to celebrate Jesus by celebrating communion. We're gonna celebrate communion together, but I want to make sure that you are focused on the right thing, the point of communion. So again, welcome to Cornerstone. For those of you who might be watching online or just listening to the message, I would love to be able to stay in touch with you for you to know what's going on with the church. So everybody remember to check in, use the app. If you're here, you can grab one of the cards or you can go just to cornerstonenh.org slash here. Now, I'm going to read the scriptures a little bit differently than I usually do. Usually I read through a whole passage and then we talk about it. I'm going to this time, 
we are going to read the whole passage, but not until a little bit later, because I want to focus in on the core of this passage. So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The whole thing is verses 17 to 34, but I'm going to start by just reading verses 23 to 26, because that is the absolute core. That is the focus of uh, communion. So Interesting thing about this, although we're used to, you know, when we read the New Testament, we see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then it gets to the letters and eventually get to 1 Corinthians. But that's not the order that they were written in. So 1 Corinthians was actually written before the Gospels, we think. So this that we're going to read here, even though it talks about celebrating communion, the establishment of this ordinance in the Gospels, this is probably the earliest and first recorded observation about how communion was celebrated in the early church. It was probably written in some cases decades before the accounts that we have in the Gospel. So this is uh, insight into the early church and how they celebrated communion. So let's look at just these uh, the, these focus verses, I'm going to read from the New Living Translation, beginning at verse 23 in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke, in pe- broke it into pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, verse 25, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at your word today, I pray that you would give insight, direction, guidance, understanding, so that we don't miss the point of what you were trying to do and trying to focus us in on as you established this ordinance of communion. I pray, Lord, that you would use what we talk about today to prompt faith in us and that when we celebrate communion at the end of today's service, that it will be with more meaning and more understanding than we've ever celebrated it before. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's look at this passage together. Again, celebrating communion celebrates Jesus. Let's start with the first part of the rest of it. Communion is an expression of faith in Jesus. It's an expression of faith in Jesus. Now, within Christian circles, within Orthodox, biblically uh, believing legitimate churches, there are different takes on this. Some of you have uh, probably heard of transubstantiation, which is what Catholics believe, that the elements of communion actually become the actual body and blood of Christ without changing their appearance to us in any way, but the essence of it changes. There's consubstantiation, which is that, that it retains the character of both the bread 
it is ultimately the bread and it is the body of Christ. There is a memorial view where it's just reminding, it's just doing, so there, there's the real presence uh, aspect to it, that, that Jesus is truly present in those elements in a, in a special way. So there's all kinds of different takes on it. I want to focus you in on uh, what the scriptures teach about it, because we're a biblically-based church, and the way that I understand it. So I'll just kind of bring you along on the journey that I have been on. So let's start with how the Apostle Paul starts in this passage. In verse 23, and I'm going to shift back and forth between a couple of translations. I'm going to use a lot today of the Christian Standard Bible. That's what CSB is in the bottom right-hand corner there, because that's a more literal translation, and that helps to pull out some things that I want to highlight. So if you see me switching around uh, versions, that's why. So it says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. What is the Apostle Paul saying there? Received and passed on is a technical term of of I have received this, tra- this, this transmission of, of faith, of, um, of tradition, and I passed it faithfully on to you. I think of it kind of like if, uh, you know, when we, when we take money to the bank, we, there's a certain amount of money. We take it to the bank. They give us a deposit slip. And what that shows is that that right amount, that whole amount, was given to the bank. So what I received, I passed on to the bank, and here's the proof. In the same way, the Apostle Paul is saying, I've been a faithful transmitter of the information that Jesus gave. This is coming to you from the Lord. What is the tradition? So he says, on the night when he was betrayed. So we're going back to the week of the Passion. This is uh, most likely on the Thursday before he goes to the cross on Friday, before the resurrection on Sunday. They were celebrating the Passover, which is the Jewish celebration that commemorates the deliverance of the ancient Israelites from their slavery in Egypt. So they're in the middle of this established celebration, you know, kind of like we celebrate Christmas and you're having Christmas dinner. It's something you do every year. Well, they're in the midst of something like that. The Lord Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So he takes bread and wine that is a part of this celebration that is supposed to remind them of things about the Passover. And he says, actually, you've been celebrating this since you were a kid and you thought this was about the ancient Israelites. You thought this was about Egypt and slavery. Actually, from now on, when you see these elements, you're going to think of me because I'm going to imbibe them with new meaning that hasn't been there before. It'd be like if I invited you over to my Christmas celebration and I said, you know how we always have this this tree out here that we, we decorate? You know, you thought that was all about Christmas. It's actually all about me. 
And so when, when you see this you, and you see how it's shaped like a point to point to heaven and then you place gifts under it, well, what that's actually telling you is to, it's to remind you that, I'm, that God has sent me to you as a gift. It's coming from God and I'm God's gift to you. Now, you're laughing and rightly so. <laughs> and rightly so. Because if I said that, you should be calling the psychiatrist and you should be finding a different place to celebrate Christmas. But this is what Jesus was doing he, with his disciples. And they probably had kind of the same thoughts. It's like, well, we, we always kind of thought this was about Moses and Egypt and slavery. He's like, no, no, no. From now on, this, this is new. This is a new covenant. This bread that used to be about, you know, how you had to make bread in haste and take it with you without leaven because you were uh, running away from your slavery in Egypt. Actually, this bread, and he breaks it, is my body, which is given or broken for you. And now from now on, when you have this celebration and when you gather around a table and when you break this bread, you're going to do this in remembrance and memorial not of Egypt, not of slavery, not of Moses, but of me. Now, the only reason we don't laugh when we hear that about what Jesus said is that he actually did it. He went to the cross. He raised from the dead. He was seen by hundreds of people alive after his death. And then they saw him ascend into heaven. So this is what it's talking about. So when he says, do this in remembrance of me, he's taking these things that used to make them think of something else and commemorate something else and said, this is actually about me. And when you see these things and when you do this celebration, I want you to remember me. So Celebrating communion is supposed to point us towards something. It's supposed to remind us something. It's a memorial or a remembrance of something. And it points to Jesus' death and the gospel, which is the good news. So if you're taking notes, this next section is important. Sometimes you will hear me kind of summarize the gospel like this. The gospel is good news. That's literally what it means, good news. The uh, the euangelion, if you want some more Greek words, was this idea that the king had gone away to fight a battle and he wins the battle. And so he sends a messenger back to the city, to the capital with the euangelion, with the good news that the battle has been fought and won. The enemies have been defeated. That's how this word was used. And now he's saying, so the good news is about me. And, and we share this good news. So what is the good news? It's about who Jesus is, his identity, that he is fully man and fully God. What he did as a result of who he is, he lived a perfect life and yet went to the cross and died a death that he did not deserve. And then what it means for us is that we can receive grace and forgiveness that we could not earn and did not deserve. So this whole thing points to Jesus. It points us to the gospel. 
Let me make, and I'm not just making this up. This is actually what the apostle Paul says. When he summarizes this, he says in verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That word proclaim is the same word that is used most often to talk about preaching the gospel, proclaiming the news of Jesus. So what he's saying is when you go through these, these celebrations, when you go through these acts, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. You're proclaiming the good news. You're proclaiming the gospel, what Jesus did. So this is important for us to understand because sometimes and in some traditions, or maybe just, you know, kind of like I kind of grew up in a tradition where I just kind of felt like communion was not a celebration. Maybe you grew up in a tradition where it was explicitly taught or you kind of got the idea or maybe just from observation, you got the idea, well, this is something that you do that, that provides salvation. You know, there are certain hoops that you have to jump through. You have to be baptized and you have to get, you have to uh, take communion and that that gives you grace that leads to salvation. So that act is super duper important. And what I think the scriptures are teaching is something a little bit different. It's not this act that saves you. It's an act that acts out what has been done to secure your salvation. You're proclaiming the good news. You're reminding, you're pointing towards the victory that was won in Jesus. So, some, so let me just give you a where I think the counter to that is, and this is again the Apostle Paul writing to another church, the church in Ephesus, another pretty famous verse, says, for you are saved by grace through faith. So yes, you need God's grace. It's delivered to you, not through a cup and bread or through some kind of religious rite that you go through. It comes to you through faith. And this whole idea of how you get redeemed, of how your sins get forgiven, about how you get new life is, is, is not your idea. It's not powered by you. It's not something that you can earn or something that you can work towards. It is God's gift. When I was studying this verse back in college, when I was studying um, Greek, which was what this was written in, I got this picture looking at the way these different things go. Have you ever seen, obviously you have, a water wheel attached to a mill, right? So what happens is there's, there's some water source, there's a stream, there's a river. You redirect that river so that it goes to a water wheel and it makes the wheel spin and that's attached to an axle that goes into the mill and that's what grinds the wheat or cuts the wood or whatever. It provides the power to get the work done. So if you picture this, the grace is there. That's the water. It's flowing. But how do you, how do you get the work done? How does it do you any good? Well, it has to be directed through a channel. And that channel is faith. And so the grace is delivered through faith and it spins the wheel and it does the work of your redemption. It changes you from the inside out. 
Now, very often people's picture of religion is you've got this, this mill that needs power and you're going around with some kind of crank and you're looking for a place to crank, <laughs> to plug it in. And you're going you're gonna to crank and you're going to make this happen. Problem with that is you don't have enough power and you don't have enough stamina to do what needs to be done. So what saves you is not some act that you do, some right that you observe. This is how God's grace is delivered. It's available. It's delivered to us by faith. And this whole setup, when it says this, I used to think that that this referred back to faith. I now think it's just talking about the whole thing. The whole way that this happens was God's idea and it's God's gift. The message translation puts it this way. Saving is all his idea, God's idea, and all his work, God's work. All we do is trust him, have faith in him to enough to let him do it. That's how it works. Now, I told you that this uh, celebration was established in Passover. You're familiar with how we celebrate Christmas. You might not be familiar with how Passover is celebrated, but basically it's a meal and there are four cups of wine that are drunk over the course of the meal and after the meal. And there is a third cup that is the first cup that's drunk after the meal and it's called the cup of redemption. Now, in Chosen, Minis Chosen People Ministries website, they describe it like this. The cup of redemption traditionally signifies the slaying of the Passover lamb that spared the Israelites from the 10th plague, the slaying of the firstborn. So you might remember that uh, God has promised deliverance for the Israelites if they will sacrifice a lamb and then they will take the blood and put it on, their, on the frame of their doors, on the top and on the sides. Somebody pointed out, it's the first time the sign of the cross is made. Isn't that cool? I think that's amazing. And so when the destroying angel came, sees the blood, passes over that house. That's how we get that name. So what this cup in the annual celebration and remembrance of this it's like, this is the cup of redemption. It reminds us that the Passover lamb has been slain, that his blood covers us and delivers us from death. So the cup traditionally remembers how the Lord redeems Israel. As now, the blood of the Passover lamb covered the believing Israelites and Egyptians back in Egypt. So the blood of Jesus covers Jewish and Gentile, everyone, believers today. So I think that just like Passover was a memorial that reminded the people of their deliverance from slavery in Egypt, Jesus imbibes it with new meaning, says this is about me. I am that Passover lamb that is slain for your forgiveness. And every time you do this celebration from now on, it should remind you it should point you to me, your Passover, your deliverance. So I think the whole point that we sell of celebrating communion is to celebrate Jesus, not to make you focus on your sins, not as a means of grace, but to point you towards the source of God's grace and forgiveness. Celebrating communion celebrates Jesus. So it's an expression of faith in Jesus 
by believers in Jesus. Now, this won't take very long at all. It's so, it's so obvious. It's kind try, of trying to like, explain to someone that the sky is blue. I mean, where do you even start with that? It's blue. You know, that's what, that's what it is. So when, uh, who celebrates communion? Well, it's the people who believe in Jesus, the people that are followers of Jesus, the people that have put their faith in Jesus. But I did find a, a verse that I think uh, highlights this pretty well. In just the previous chapter of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is talking about, uh, uh, talking about communion in the context of something else. And he says in verse 16, when we bless the cup at the Lord's table, aren't we sharing in the blood of Christ? And when we break the bread, Aren't we sharing in the body of Christ? That word sharing is the word from which we get fellowship. We tend to call celebrating the Lord's Supper communion. See the root there? Community. What we have in common, what we share in, what our fellowship is based on is our like shared faith in Jesus. What does that mean? That means that I know that Jesus is, is who he said he is, fully God, fully man. That he, what he did, he died on the cross for my sins. What does that mean for me? That if I place my faith in him, if I accept his sacrifice for my sins, then my sins can be forgiven. And when just as he was raised from the dead, raised to new life, I can have new life as well. We share in that faith and share in the benefits of that faith. So, Communion is accurately, appropriately celebrated by people who are believers in Jesus. So what does that mean? That means when we celebrate, we're probably going to have some people, most people that go to church are probably going to be followers of Jesus, but there will be times where people have not yet crossed the line of faith. They're checking it out. And if that's you, I'm always so thrilled that you are here. We, we design our church so that you will be able to feel welcome and to understand what's going on. But it's kind of, celebrating communion when you haven't yet crossed the line of faith is kind of like celebrating your anniversary when you never got married. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It's like, well, why would you even do that? Uh, so the analogy is when you cross the line of faith, just like when you decide to get married, you throw a party and that party is called a wedding where you publicly announce to everybody, I'm tying my life to this person. We are going to be together forever. And that's what that means. So let's have a party for us. That's baptism. We celebrate. You're entering into a new relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We act it out in baptism. And then when we have our celebration of communion, that's like celebrating our anniversary. It's reminding us of how we got in this relationship and the basis of it. So it's appropriately celebrated by believers. And if that's not you, then you know, a, a lot of times people are turned off by the church because of hypocrisy. Don't be one of those people that are hypocrites celebrating something that doesn't mean anything to you just because everybody else is doing it. Feel free just to kind of sit back and observe. You're not going to, we're not going to look at you funny. We're not going to think anything different. It's like, oh, okay, that person's in process. They have integrity. They're not going to celebrate something that is meaningless to them. So 
Celebrating communion celebrates Jesus. Communion is an expression of faith in Jesus by believers in Jesus in a way that honors Jesus. So now I'm going to go back and I'm going to read the entirety of this passage so that you can see the greater context. Beginning at verse 17. Now, what you have to understand about this letter is that it was written to a church in response to a report that the Apostle Paul heard back. He's like, he hears from somebody, he's like, here's what's going on in this church. And also they had written him a letter asking specific questions. So he's addressing specific, in, specific issues related to what's going on in the church. But in the following instructions, I cannot praise you. He's just given them some attaboys, some good jobs. And now he's saying, uh, and here's where it stops. For it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. First, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church. And to some extent, I believe it. But of course, there must be divisions among you so that you who have God's approval will be recognized. When you meet together, you are not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. And as a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. What, don't, don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will not praise you for this. And then I'll skip the passage that I read earlier. He goes on and, and says, well, this is how it's supposed to be done. This is what it means. Pick, pick it up again at verse 27. So anyone who eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. This is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick and some have even died. But if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. Yet when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So, my dear brothers and sisters, when you gather for the Lord's Supper, wait for each other. If you're really hungry, eat at home so you won't bring judgment upon yourselves when you meet together. I'll give you instructions about the other matters after I arrive. So what's the context? The Apostle Paul has heard that they're celebrating, they're getting together for a church, they're having the Lord's Supper, but there are two problems. Number one, there's arguing and, and divisions. There's, there's, there's this division among them. When you get, first I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church. So part of the symbolism of communion is that we are sharing in one cup. We are sharing from one loaf of bread. It's a symbol of our unity. We all get into the faith the same way based on what Jesus has done, symbolized by the elements of communion. So it's supposed to be an expression of unity, but when you get together, it's just turning into one big family argument. It's like some of your Thanksgivings and Christmases you, you're in your family, right? It's like, that's not what should be going on at all. And then when he introduces the second part, this is really interesting because look at how he introduces it in verse 20. So then when you come together, it is not 
the Lord's Supper that you eat. Now, what does he mean by that? He's about to tell him the second problem, and he's like, this has gone so far off the rails that when you're celebrating communion, you're not even really celebrating communion because it, 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 doesn't, even, it doesn't even look like anything it's supposed to look like. Why? First, there were divisions, and then there was selfishness. For some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. Now, they were celebrating communion, observing the Lord's Supper, in the context of a meal that is sometimes in the New Testament called a love feast. This was when the whole church would get together. It was like a super duper potluck with the purpose of not only fellowshipping and worshiping and coming together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, but it was a way of providing for the needs of the poor in the congregation as well. This was a time long before welfare or anything like that. So if people were going hungry, they were going hungry. So what would happen was the church would get together and the people who had more resources would bring greater participation in the meal and the people that needed help could show up and eat freely. But instead of that, the people who had more resources and more food and better food would show up early, gorge themselves, drink themselves into intoxication before the poor showed up. And then it wasn't meeting the need. It wasn't doing, and it's like, this is so out of kilter. This is so wrong. It's not even celebrating the Lord's Supper anymore. So that's the problem that he's dealing with and addressing. And he's saying, look, you, you got to address this. Now, I love the way the message puts it. What you must solemnly realize, what he's getting to the point is like, you need to do something different. Is that every time you eat this bread and every time you drink this cup, you reenact in your words and actions the death of of the master. In other words, what we were just saying, that this is a, this is a play where you act out the, the, the truth of the gospel. And so you're, you're dealing with very, very solemn, very meaningful, very uh, significant issues, and you're dealing with them in such a flippant and unserious way. So he says, anyone, this again, the message Anyone who eats the bread or drinks the cup of the master irreverently is like part of the crowd that jeered and spit on him at his death. Is that the kind of remembrance you want to be a part of? It's like you're, you're talking about, you're acting out the death of the Messiah. And yet in the midst of that, you're showing contempt for your Lord. And who did that? I mean, when, when Jesus was actually crucified, there were crowds that jeered him and spit on him and showed him contempt. Is that the crowd that you want to be a part of? No. Now, a more literal translation, a New Living Translation puts it like this. This is why, that is why, you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. And this is where the tradition that I grew up in focused on. Examine yourself. Make sure that your life aligns with the faith that you are proclaiming. And there's a place for that. But, but, it's not about your sin. It's about the solution to your sin. And we can't ever forget that. 
let me come back to the core of that passage. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, the cup of redemption, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. This is the new way that we get to relate with God, not based on our works, not based on keeping laws, but on what Jesus did in offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins. This is the new way that things work. And it's brought about by my death, my broken body, my spilled blood. And so he says, do this, do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. What is the focus of this observation? Me, Jesus. That's what it's all about. And so, this, I love this from the book that I was studying and getting ready for that. If the Lord's Supper becomes an occasion for compounding your guilt, then you're missing the point entirely. If it's all about focusing on your sin and how bad you are and how you're constantly still, even though you're a follower of Jesus, failing Jesus over and over again, and you just feel bad and beat down as you're walking out the door, you've missed the point entirely. Yes, recognize your sin. Yes, recognize that as a follower of Jesus, there's an ethical component to that that should be a part of your life. And, and you don't want to treat that flippantly. But this is good news, not bad news, not depressing news, not failure news. This is good news that in spite of of who you were, in spite of your failings, in spite of the fact that you are not yet what you want to be, there's a solution to that. There's forgiveness, there's grace, there's power, and the victory has already been fought and won. The quote goes on to say, the Lord's Supper proclaims to us, announces the good news to us that our guilt is gone. Our debt is paid. Our punishment has been taken. Our sins forgiven and forgotten. So when you come to communion, remember your sins in the context of the grace and goodness and provision of God that you now have good news to share and to embrace that because of what Jesus did, you are forgiven. You have been given new life. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about celebrating communion because celebrating communion is not a focus on our sins. It is a celebration of Jesus, who he is, what he did, and what it means for us. So our communion, when we participate in communion, is an expression of our faith. Yes, I want what Jesus did to count for me. I'm going to take this in, literally, in the elements of communion and remind us that we are expressing our faith when we to make, take communion. Because we are believers in Jesus, we get the benefit of what Jesus did for us. 
And we do it in a way that honors Jesus. We don't forget that there's an ethical component to it that we should take this seriously and not flippantly. So let's do it. Let's celebrate communion. Let's be reminded of what Jesus did for us and let's celebrate it and be reminded of it. Now, I'm going to encourage you. Maybe you are one of those. It's like, I don't know where I stand. I haven't quite accepted. I haven't quite uh, said yes to Jesus yet. Well, now is your time. You can do it right now. And you can take communion without hypocrisy and with integrity when you're saying, yes, I want what Jesus did on the cross to count for me. I'm surrendering my life to him and I'm going to follow him from this point on. Now you're doing it a little bit out of order. You should get baptized first. And if you haven't been baptized and you're a follower of Jesus, what are you waiting for? That's supposed to be the first step. So just take care of that. But, but we'll sign you up for, for that. But take communion with understanding, in faith, and with integrity. So you can take a next step on those connection cards and the different ways that you can do that. There's a place where you can say, I'm saying yes to Jesus for the first time. And if that's you, then take that step. We'll follow up with you. We'll get you the information you need. We'll help you schedule your baptism, whatever needs to be done. But let's say yes to Jesus. Let's celebrate Jesus by celebrating communion. You should already have the elements of communion. And I often quote this passage that we looked at when we are celebrating communion. We start with the bread. Jesus took the bread and he broke it. He shared it among the disciples and said, this is my body, which is given for you, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took the cup, the cup of redemption. He said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant, purchased for, secured by my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And as often as we celebrate communion, we are proclaiming the Lord's death. We are announcing the good news of Jesus until he comes again. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the good news. I thank you, Lord, that we are not under your judgment, but recipients of your grace when we place our faith in Jesus. Lord, we thank you for establishing this habit, this act of communion to remind us of how we got adopted into your family, how we became the basis upon which we are citizens in your kingdom. And I thank you, Lord, that it didn't depend upon me. I thank you, Lord, that it didn't depend upon my good behavior, my power, my ability but instead that in your grace and goodness, you gifted forgiveness, life, power, and a rewritten future for me and all my brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, may we never lose track of that, never lose sight of that, always celebrate in that. And pray this in Jesus' name.
And everyone said, Amen. Amen.